Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. This time out, stage number two of my chat with Pete Silva. We'll pick up his career in 1982 when he drove in what is now the Xfinity series, was ultra-fast in the Bush North series, then decided to reboot his racing career at the age of 45 in the mid-90s to great success. And we'll also find out if Pete still has the itch. Now, this podcast directly benefits Maine Vintage Race Car Association, preserving the history of racing in the state of Maine. There are a couple of ways that you can support our organization. First, membership is our lifeblood. Individual memberships are available for less than $2 a month. Racing is a family sport. Sign up the whole family for $25 a year. That's right, just over $2 a month. It's good for the entire family. And you can also purchase multi-year memberships as well. We certainly appreciate it. You can do so via our website, mainvintagerace.org. Mainvintagerace.org. You can also directly support this podcast through Patreon by going to patreon.com slash opentrailerpodcast. The money raised goes directly into the production and equipment to make this whole puppy sing, and I appreciate the support. The link for this can be found on our Facebook page, which, by the way, please give us a like on that. Follow us on Twitter, Main Vintage Race Car Association on Facebook and Instagram. And thank you for connecting with us socially. That helps out as well. Everything helps. So, all right, let's get to it. Stage two of Pete Silva. So let's skip ahead to 1982. Um, You're you're running the what is now the Xfinity series. It went it went uh, late model sportsman, then it went Budweiser series, then Bush. The funny thing is the record keeping is so spotty. But one thing is consistent is the finishes. You had some really good finishes. Places like Rockingham, Caraway, Hickory. What did you love about Hickory? You know, if you think about Hickory, let's go. Let's talk about Mike Rowe and Ricky Craven. Mm-hmm. Ricky Craven's first Bush race came where? Uh, first Bush race. Hickory, North Carolina. Mike Rowe, first Southern win, maybe his only Southern win. Where did that come from? Where was he at for that? Hickory. Hickory. I think our short tracks here, I know Unity, and I think the time I spent at Catamount, just it was like I was on those tracks when I was there. There was nothing unfamiliar about it when I got there. Can you talk about Catamount for for a second? I mean, I was there for a few races as, uh, as a spectator. But that was when I was a child. I go back, I look at pictures of the track now. It just seems like it was very, very narrow. Corners were, had some width to them. The straightaways mm-hmm. are maybe a little bit narrow. Mm-hmm. Nice track. Yeah. Blast to go there is another thing that's a shame. So it was bought for, to, uh, for a development and never finished, so it just sits there. Yeah, that was kind of a waste. Then, all of a sudden, 1983, 1984, uh, things take a bit of a different turn. Um, you're not necessarily running as many races. No, sponsorship just dried up, and just one of those deals. I went through a deal, 82 and 3. I I wasn't running my own car at the time. Just got expensive, still fast, but it was worn out, and I just not sure what the deal was. 
Did you want to come back to the north right away, or did you you were going to stick this one out down south? Well, I, I can't. You know, something I had something going on back north, and I came home for about a month. It was like taking that car back that I crashed and staying in North Carolina for four years. I came back here for a short amount of time and stayed another several years. Hmm. I just came back, and uh, my longtime friend David Prescott, who was in a wheelchair. Got to spend a lot of time around him and talking, and he, he'd always had a dream of owning a a race team. And around 85, there were all kinds of uh, conversation going into 86 about the newly formed NASCAR Bush North deal. And uh, Yeah. So we, we obviously we put a deal together to, to do that. Now, those years, uh, specifically in 1988, uh, you win races uh, at Monadnock. And- we won at Monadnock, and we won it a quarter mile track then one at a half mile track oh we go New York were you uh, you running six cylinder at no. this point so you were a V8 among V6s yeah. we won both those races with a V8 everybody had sixes so what was why would everybody run V6s if obviously what you're doing in the V8's I, just fine I, the six was probably a better way to go we, we had one built and we brought it to the 250 no practice nothing qualified on the outside pole and had a water leak in the head and didn't know and it pumped water out of it and burned it up because it didn't show on the gauge Hmm. put the V8 back in whatever was going on with the motor shop at the time they just couldn't get the parts we needed so we kept running the V8 Hmm. I know when we went to uh, Monadnock I thought I'd get killed there because of the weight difference and everybody was running a 680 something gear and a 700 and we ran a 633 and won the race it just rolled yeah, and I didn't have to use all that gear to bind it up. And then we went to uh, Owego. It was just the opposite. We ran more gear than everybody else. The six cylinders would basically eat us up in the corners, mm-hmm. and we just we'd get away probably a few car lengths down a straightaway. And by the time they gained what they'd lost, we were gone again. Would NASCAR not let you run the X because you were number one at this point? Up here, there was really. No big conversation about it, but after the first year down there, they asked me to change it because they couldn't they couldn't get it on the scoreboard. It's a Roman numeral; oh, it's not right. an actual number. They had to score me score us as a ten at the time. Right, heartbreaker, really. Yeah, you know, it's your own form of notoriety, I guess, is your number. Yeah, when I first started watching you um, in grandstands, you were number one. You were the you were the one car. Those are the first memories I have of you of racing. So to me, you were always the one. So to go back and look at pictures years later and see you as the X and realize that there's whole other persona. Listen to me, and I think other families do it. The Burgess family, the Robinson family. I mean, it's a big deal to run your father's number. Mm-hmm. I think. Yes. I couldn't wait to do it. There wasn't. Trust me, there wasn't any question about what the number was going to be, hmm. ever. So, Pete, uh, you go south again in uh, what year? 93. And why do you go back down there? I just kind of got my life back together and, and uh, just to, it was 45 years old, usually about the time everybody quits now, and I just uh, hmm. just really wanted to race again. And how long had it been since you were in a competitive car or you felt that you were in a situation where week in, week out, you were a threat? Well, I hadn't raced since... I got done basically in 88. I drove a super late model for a few races, I think, in 91. And, and I built a car, and I went went to 250 with it and ran excellent. Won the last chance race and got up to eighth and 
something happened to the rear end. And what year was this? Eighty nine. Ninety, maybe ninety one or two. Probably ninety one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I hadn't, as far as going and racing on a weekly. I think I went to Star too. So wait a minute, just to back up a second. You you win two races in the first couple of. Um, races in, in 1988 are there any teams that that come to you and say no. hey uh you got a fast car you're a good guy we we know your record would you like to drive for us because no. that was the time that bush north was really booming and prescott just ran out of, you know money just he ran out of money and couldn't mm. continue it yeah you know and, and uh i understood it we had a full team yeah that's unfortunate and so we just got away from it it was hard you know i probably talked to a few people but you know you want to be in something if it, that you can at least be somewhat competitive. Be in the fight, even if you don't win it. Be in the fight. Hmm. I mean, there really weren't that many cars around at the time. The people weren't driving. Yeah. So you uh, you go south and you're running. Uh, you know, at 45, you're like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna all of a sudden just crush it again. <laughs> I called KLB Race Cars and another team that I and I said, listen, I, I just want to race again. And it, it, mind boggling, no hesitation at all. Dwight Huffman, who's passed away, that I won the regional championship with, and KL, KLB got together, and I, there was a car waiting. But I was rusty. Did you test beforehand, or a little bit? We went to Asheville, of course, which is probably one of the toughest short tracks in, in America, and you've probably heard that. Yeah, I think they had twin fifties at a super late model division, and they were trying to start up the late model stock division and give it a little advantage. And we tried that route. We were at a disadvantage. I kind of tore it up pretty bad that night. Mm. Uh, we had a shot at winning the second one, actually, and had a flat tire. We came back the next week and won the race, but it was feast of famine. We ended up winning 10 races that year, but wow, we won uh, We won four there. Greenville Pickens started a late model stock car division. We won, every, we won the first four of those, and they dropped the division. So had you learned a time trial better at this point? or Yes. I, yeah, but listen, as the 80s went along, I sat on the pole a few times before that year was over. and I, I think in 81, that car was still good. In 12 races, we, I think we sat on the pole nine times, outside pole twice, and third once. So. Because you can't lose sight I was in a good car. You know, people can take all the credit they want. I was in a car that was, I was in a banjo car in banjo territory, so there was banjo knowledge around. So, so 1998, you win uh, the track championship at Greensville Pickens. Yeah. Uh, what was that season like for you? Well, it was tough because I had my own car and and, and uh, I was going to drive for Dwight and I. Greenville's all hundred lappers, and we won the first four of those in a row, two in one night. Hmm. I think we won five in a row. And Greenville's opened up, and we don't have the new car ready. And obviously, I'm leading the points at Asheville, but the car counts like 16. And I'm driving borrowed cars at Greenville with like 28 or 30 cars, and I'm running in the top five, but I'm not winning. And they've never had a race the same night in history. And Bristol used to race, which is close by. Greenville just wouldn't race on Saturday night. But the new NASCAR point system is you have to have so many races in to be eligible. You had to make 20 races, 18 oh. or 20. So they just backed their race up to Friday night, and I had to make a decision. Hadn't lost a race at Asheville. But but to win anything big, you got to go with those cars. And they talked me into going to Greenville. That mm. was the hottest pill I ever swallowed. So we qualify on the pole, 29 cars, coming down for the to take the checkered flag, and the left rear goes flat. Ooh. Dive in the pit, start on the rear, win the race, 
get disqualified for a sixteenth inch of wheelbase. So now I've lost everything, right? I'm not leading the points there, and I've lost what I had going on it. Yeah, that's a tough night. But we came back. I think we won seven, the next seven races in a row. Between the two tracks, we won 12 straight races. I think we won 17 before the year was out. Are you still known as the Yankee at this point, or have you established your own fan base and you've, <laughs> you've assimilated a little bit? I'm pretty fortunate fan-wise. I've, mm. For some reason, I've been lucky. Even the fans in the South, you know, they consider me... They're Yankee. There's a lot of <laughs> right. you're still that damn Yankee. Still, you think love, with even, love, yeah, you know, even in 2021. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been very fortunate fan wise. Hmm. Very, very fortunate. When do you stop racing? I got done in 2006. Uh, I still had a hell of a sponsor, Blossom and Gas. Mm. Still running well. Had one in a year or so, but I was still sitting on the pole. I was leading a lot of races. I just hadn't got the hang of big bar sauce stuff. It was like one year I win the championship. You're running like 350s and 400 with a one-inch bar, and you come back the next year, and they're running 175s with a with a two-inch bar. And the economy was struggling, so they were laying off several people in Mooresville, so all the people with money were hiring the Winston Cup people to come in and take care of their kids in the Saturday night cars and had all of that big boss offspring knowledge. I was going to ask how things changed from the late 70s, early 80s to, to the 90s when you were, you know, you're running the same tracks, but two completely different eras. Uh, what were the what were the competitors like in the late 90s compared to the, you know, the uh, Tommy Houstons, the Jack Ingrams, the Sam Ards that you competed with back then? Well, uh, most of those people raced forever. By the time I got there, it's an awful thing to say, and you didn't get, and there weren't many young people at the Cup deal until I got there in '93. But before that, the chassis setups weren't tremendously different, and, mm. and the drivers were pretty much the same. Now, when I got there in '93, that was the first year of Jeff Gordon, mm. and before that, we raced geographically in the same area. All the people like Raw and all the people you mentioned, Stan, Ralph, Davo, Graves, up on our end, people knew we were going to be there every Saturday night. We, we were fortunate enough to build a fan base, and it was a consistency. 93 comes along, and Gordon's the year of the youth. Now all these people showing up, all these kids racing, great kids, but maybe not as into racing as their parents are. Right. And, and after two or three good weeks of races, it seems like they've gone on to the next level. So the fan base changed. Everything changed. The quality, I shouldn't say the quality of driver, the type of drivers changed. It was completely different for a while. That's why I always, as the economics changed of the sport in this state, and people not staying around, moving up. You can't blame them for moving up, but it did Mm. change the consistency and it hurt the car counts. People like Stan Reserve, Ralph Nason, and Mike Rowe kept it consistent, kept it relevant, because they, they had extended successful careers. Mm-hmm. You knew those people were going to be somewhere as consistently, and I do think they stayed. The racing community owes them a debt of gratitude for that, at least, you know? Yeah, there's. Uh, doesn't matter the division, whether it was top division or, um, you know, support division. There's one moment that I point to in I don't know what year it was late 80s John Lazat who was uh, is a you know main motorsport hall of famer yes heck of a guy running this uh, the figure eight division at, at Oxford I, now, I, I was only there because the tour was there so but the stands were packed 
They knew that John Lazat was going to be there. They knew the Oh No car was going to be there, and it was it was a show. I, you know, of course, I would go with my parents, but I wanted to see the figure eights, and the world did not like John Lazat. So he wins this race, and everybody's booing. And I'm like, why are they booing this guy? He seems like a pretty decent dude. He gets out of his car, he stands up, and before Kyle Busch did the bow, <laughs> long before he he bowed in front of ten thousand people <laughs> and said, "Thank you very much. That was great." You know, that's personality you know he's always been a great guy yeah yeah you know you're you're very uh, astute to to point out that it isn't the the driver's fault the young driver's fault for wanting to move up and i think a lot of people will fault modern day racing for not developing stars and personalities and whatnot and tony stewart came out and said it he said you can't expect a 23 year old to know who he is yet he needs to he needs time to develop that personality he's right something i thought was really great when i first got every weekend every after the first weekend every week friday night Asheville, Hmm. saturday night hickory sunday would be uh, Kingsport or South Boston. But the thing that I noticed, and I got into it too, was the next division down, and it goes back to growth, Mm. was the same car, maybe older, had a weaker motor in it. And every night after we ran 100 laps, they came and bought our tires for half price, (laughs) put on their cars. We had money for new tires. Mm. But when that guy decided he had enough experience and wanted to move up, it might not have been the latest, greatest car, but it was the right car to move with. All he had to do was get a bigger motor, Mm. and he already knew what the car was going to do and how to adjust it. I thought that was the greatest thing going. You just don't see it anymore. If you want to do anything now, everything has to be completely different or rebought, so to speak. Where do you think short track racing is now, and where do you think it will be in five years? I don't know. I think it's necessary, Mm. because if you look, the people watching Winston Cup racing are screaming about more short tracks. We always want what we can't have. Well. People wanted more road courses. I think in five years, when you have six road courses on the schedule, you're going to find out how many people really want road courses. Well, six is probably enough. Probably maybe more than enough. But, you know, what's the track out west towards the west is cutting it down from a mile and a half to a half mile. Uh, California or Auto Club. But, But it's just... You've got to start somewhere. You can't, you know, I, I guess you can go start on a speedway, go to a driving school, but... Well, now you start with iRacing. Yeah. It seems like that. Have you ever done that? Have you ever no. done iRacing? No. Do you have any aspirations just to try uh, it out? Probably at some point. I thought yeah. it was pretty cool. I thought it was fun to watch, and I'm, I always marvel at the guy that drove, drives for uh, Hendricks there, one of them. William uh, Byron? Isn't that his whole experience? Yeah. Yeah. And it's he's wild. won a cup race, right? I mean, yes. wow. Yes, I thought he would win three cup races this year or last year, but it did not work out that well. Well, yeah. it's like Jimmy Johnson, what he's gone through. They've been in position to win a few races. It just mm. takes a lot, or a lot not going bad for you. Pete, you've run a number of different generations uh, across, and you've you've run with the old guard, the new guard, in the middle. Who's Who are the three best drivers that you've competed against? <laughs> That's not even fair because everything's mm. in a in a – you know, when I was up here, I mean, when I got there, there was Norris and Fuzzy and Davo. You and raced Gaines. against Fuzzy Holden? Yes. And, and, but but wow. I, just when I was pecking along there, right. then you brought along Stan and Ralph, and then you migrate, you know, to Wiscasset, and you got Bill Bailey and that group, yes. and then go to Oxford, and you Mike Rowe. How many great guys come out of there? And, and then next thing I know, I'm sitting on a straightaway, and, and uh, it, 
by the second year, he's sitting there and there's Jack Ingram, Sanhart, Bush Lindley, uh, Tommy Ellis, uh, Tommy Houston, uh, Morgan Shepard, Dale Jarrett, Harry Gant. I mean, I can, I can yeah. just keep going. And then, and then I go to Charlotte or Rockingham, and I was, you know, I used a lot of times I qualified in the top 10, and you look out, and you, my God, there's Tim Richmond, uh, Neil Bonnet, Dale Earnhardt, Daryl yeah. Waltrip. It's like, how, how do you sit and pick one and not. You can pick 300, Pete. I, I, I've told people, that, you know, like the main Hall of Fame deal, I've been fortunate in my life that I've been on the racetrack with probably the best some of the best race car drivers in American stock car racing history. And, and that's in each state hmm. that I've been to. Where it's, I've got my ears pinned back a lot, but I got a few licks in here or there, you know. <laughs> got them pinned back a lot, but a lot of great racers there. What was the first moment that you had where you're like, I made it? Was it that day at Oxford where they rolled out the red carpet? Was it? No, you know? God, no. That was, yeah. that'll always be a, I'll never forget that. It was just wild. Uh, Someone think, giving you inspiration that you didn't know admired you? I, I think, you know, I got calls on a couple of deals to drive cars. Like, Tommy, they had a, a winner shootout at Hickory one night, only winners. And it was a big event for the race, and, and I had no ride to drive that night. And Tommy Ellis let me drive the 12 car, the one that won the 250. Ooh. 83. I'm surprised he didn't kill me when I brought it back. But yeah. They ran out of tires, and of course, back to that Yankee deal, like Sam and Jack and Houston all got four tires, and I got two. You know what's funny? You would probably be more popular in the South than Tommy Ellis was, and he's <laughs> from the South. <laughs> well, why, why do people have so much of a problem with him? Tommy... Listen, I, Tommy and Brenda, I, those are great people. Tommy had a persona, kind of like that Bob Presley deal. He wasn't yeah. going to back down. He'd fight a buzzsaw, you know, and he wasn't going to take any grief. And uh, But I knew him maybe a little better than that. I mean, he was a good guy. I talked with him a lot. And uh, But, boy, he was a hell of a competitor. I mean, what you saw is what you got there. Yeah. You seem to know everybody. Um, you know who's the who's the you don't have to give the number, but uh, who's the most famous person in your phone? God Almighty! I don't know. I know people all over the place. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> even know, and I, I, that's crazy because it goes it's, to a lot of states. Right? Wow, that's a good question. Hmm. You know, from well, you can take a look at your phone from Banjo's kid to yeah. uh, all the people that work there, from Hess race guys to KLB race guys to. Uh, like Fryer, Bonds and Reese. I mean, I just... Mm. Who's the... Um, Jack Ingram. Uh, did you drive for Jack Ingram? Yeah. Okay, tell me about that. I mean, we were fast at a couple of places. We went to Bristol and didn't make the race, and I don't know if... So I went and did another race with him, Hickory, and we were really good there, and there was a mistake made at a pit stop, and one of those deals, another deal that shouldn't have happened, but yeah. we ran second for a long time. Which we've been, Jack and I have been frenemies. Really? But I know when they did the uh, deal at GMS, the Hickory Reunion, which was the tribute where those shirts you're wearing were made, mm. when we sat down at an autograph session and the first person I had to go sit with was Jack. Oh. Between him and Bosco Lowe. But I wouldn't have swapped it for anything. It's another time of life. Mm-hmm. And it was good for both of us. We enjoyed it. I'd be glad to do it again. 
What's interesting to me is uh, when you know you compete in the moment 20, 30 years ago, and sometimes even at the Hall of Fame, you know, when we seat people and everything, we wonder if those rivalries, like, can you bury? Do, do you do you bury a lot of that when you go to a reunion? I, oh, absolutely. Uh, but but honestly, good point because I think. Race drivers are like what they call like an elephant, never forget something there. Yes, I just brought up a random yeah. fact about Sinair, and you and, nailed it. And and I think if you were going to go back and have a race, hmm. you had a grudge. I don't know if you'd do anything stupid, but, yeah. but I'm sure you'd do something to make yourself feel better. That's why we have those old-timers <laughs> leagues, right? Yeah. But it, good point. But hmm. you're right. Life changes, and you look back, and you have a different appreciation. And Stan and Ralph are, 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 are a very good point because they gave us weapons when I was trying to get the hang of it. And I know there's people still stung by it. But when I look back now, we're so fortunate to race in an era that those two headlined up on our end of the state for a couple of reasons. When Stan showed up with that blue and gold Chevelle, it was like an explosion. And Bob Knowles' hmm. promoting expertise took advantage of every bit of that. And then Ralph shows up with that, as everybody would say, that damn kick car. Yes, it's right over there. Yeah. yeah. So we not only had to get better, then we had to get smarter and update our equipment. Hmm. And as we got so we could keep up with those two at different times, Bob Knowles made us part of the promotional package, which gave us notoriety. There were other drivers, but those two headlined it. Hmm. Now we've got a better chance of getting sponsorship money. So when I look back, there's a whole different appreciation. Can you tell me a little bit about Bob Knowles and his... Um just the way he promoted races and, and what he did for Unity. Well, at the time, you, 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 in your mind, you believe he's letting Ralph <laughs> stay in cheek because they're whipping you so bad. Right. But I look at the little things that you that are important. I mean, he was really fair to everybody. Yeah. And if there was a problem, he'd come see you or call you. Was he a person that was at the track every race meet? You, you better believe it. He was there mm-hmm. all day mowing the lawn and touching up the fences, painting, mm-hmm. go home and shower and come back. And as I bounced around... Boy, promoters are different in a lot of different places. Some are all about, I hate to say it, greedy and the money and the rest of them. Obviously, they all want to make money, but they're under taking care of the product, too. Yeah. And, and Bob, the place was spit-shined. He, he treated us all equally. His promotional package just made us all look good. You know, you could probably a few times a week. And, and by the time Friday came around and Saturday morning, not only was he in the newspaper, he was so much on the radio that if you were riding around wondering what to do, you knew Unity was the place to be. Wow. And he's still that gracious person today. Who do you have the most gratitude for in your racing career? <clears throat> I think I have so many friends that aren't here anymore that just sold their souls. I think when you go through those early stages and you don't think you have anything, mm. boy, you've got everything because there's a bunch of guys that are with you feeling the same way and they're giving up their lives so obviously every one of those people and the majority aren't here anymore some of them weren't here when we were fortunate enough to get into a couple of Hall of Fames because that's a reward of their efforts Mm. but probably in the scheme of things the notoriety that I gained going forward would be would have to be Bucky Runcer and the Budweiser deal because that just just kept moving us forward I kind of feel bad because he wanted to stay on the NASCAR North tour the Budweiser guy yes and I ended up in the south by accident because yeah. of an accident right. and, and then when they offered that deal I called him back and Junior gave you a ride in this truck <laughs> I said uh, listen can I stay 
you know, there was no other way to word it. Mm. And I know it. I, I think he was hoping that I would stay for a bit and then come home with some knowledge. But as the year went, you know, and you keep winning. and, and, and uh, But then again, the, the checkbook ended. I got the car, the truck, and the trailer, and I tell people that was like giving me the keys to King Kong without the Chiquita <laughs> franchise defeated. But we picked up some sponsorship. You know, winning is always a cure. Yeah. For money or whatever. You still have the itch? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, you take what we're going through now, the downtimes, and you sit back. People call, like I said, to talk to Dana Grace for like 45 minutes the other day. I'm going to Davos Monday. Hmm. Spend Monday with Rita and Dave. What are you going to talk about? Racing in the yeah. past and the glory years. Of course, you're going to miss it. Yeah. No big surprise there. want to thank Pete for taking the time out of his busy schedule, and it is busy, to sit down and have a nice long chat about his racing career. Now, next time out... We'll feature a Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame legend who still has not been paid for his first victory. One problem is when that happens, sometimes you don't get paid. Oddly enough, <laughs> the night I won, uh, never got paid. You still a, waiting for that check? Yeah, I got a oh. case of, case of racing oil, and I think you can see it on the sitting on the hood of the car. Yeah, and. Um, the checkered flag. That's right, Bruce Elder on our next episode, stage number one of two, next time out on the Open Trailer Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>